Hello and welcome along to the On The Whistle podcast. I'm your host, Zayn Nabi. Look, a real slice of Americana. I'm here today on the outskirts of Chicago. As we dig into the Women's World Cup, we have people all around the world with me. We have Fredoz Munda dialing in from the picturesque Cape Town. Fredoz, how are you doing? I am very well. Thank you, Zayn. It's uh, really a month. It's actually Women's Month here in South Africa. So, uh... It's wonderful to be talking about women's sport, and there's a lot going on. There's a Women's Football World Cup, and despite uh, what people think, there's also a Netball World Cup, which is gaining <laughs> loads and loads of popularity. So uh, women's sport is is thriving, and, and it's thriving in Africa, which is great. Listen, for those, you're our women's football editor at large, so you know it's women's football day every day on this podcast. Um, and uh, wouldn't be complete without... Our cross-platform co-host, interview extraordinaire. No, not Courtney Freeze. I'm talking about Alistair Howard. Alistair, how are you doing in Middle Britain? I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, yeah, sorry you've had to settle for me and, and not Courtney today. But don't worry for those. Next, next week, we're doing a netball special. <laughs> no football, African netball. That's it. So we'll be making up for it. Don't worry. <laughs> well, well, listen, guys. As you all know, we've been all in on the Women's World Cup here at On The Whistle. We've seen some incredible results. Not one, not two, but three African teams have made it to the knockout rounds. That's one more than the men that we had in Qatar. Oh, you got to love the sound of a motorbike. That's just true Americana. But our teams have been flying their way in the World Cup. We've seen Morocco on debut after a 6-0 drubbing come in and make the knockout rounds. Germany go home. You've seen South Africa emerge, keep us on tenterhooks, send the Italians packing. Amazing result for them. And then it would be incomplete without mentioning Nigeria. And that's where I would like to start today's story. Because in the build-up to this Women's World Cup, Alistair, you spoke to Randy Waldrum about the Super Falcons. This was a team that seemed in disarray with regards to payments that hadn't gone through with regards to support on camps, with access to facilities, logistics, all these sorts of things, the Nigerians seemed like a super mess. But there have been anything like that at the World Cup. So I don't know if you want to recap a little <laughs> before talking about their trajectory here, but wow, have they given us something to cheer and, and be proud of. Yeah, I mean, they it is just an unbelievable story of kind of succeeding in spite of challenges and in spite of kind of challenges imposed in many senses by themselves, not the players, but the Federation, because yeah, we spoke to Randy Waldrum ahead of the world cup and it was unbelievable. The things he's saying, saying he hadn't been paid at one point for 18 months. He said some of the players were still owed um, money from two years ago, a camp they did in the U S uh, you know, they canceled their pre world cup training camp in Nigeria um, and at one point, we even thought that, you know, Waldron might even be sacked the day before the World Cup campaign started. I mean, it was unbelievable. And at one point, the players might, you know, there was reports that the players might even have to boycott that first match against Canada because, you know, they weren't they weren't going to be paid. And, you know, that that still hasn't been resolved. It's really important that we, we note that, that they still haven't got confirmation that they will be paid what they're owed. Um, but they've put that to the side and have performed sensationally. And, you know, coming into this World Cup, 
you know, at the instant you saw the draw, you said there's one group of death, and that is the group that Nigeria is in. You know, you have the Olympic champions, Canada, you have the hosts, Australia, who kind of coming into it, you know, with, especially with Sam Kerr, in my opinion, arguably the best player in the world, you know, really look like one of the favorites. And, you know, they have a debutant, but, you know, a debutant in Ireland who have a team full of players who are playing the WSL, NWSL, you know, players like Katie McCabe, who are just, you know, incredible talents. And so for Nigeria to first get that nil-nil draw against Canada, incredible. But then to go and beat that, to do one better and beat hosts Australia, yes, you know, they only got the draw against Ireland. And I think that's the one take against them is that if they had just beaten Ireland, which a game they should have won, in my opinion, they could be up against Denmark. And instead they're up against England. And now, you know, and England, in my opinion, are probably the favorites for the tournament right now. They're brilliant. But it has been sensational. And, and you know, on top of that, you know, you think like, Asisat Oshwala has hardly been fit. She's not been able to play in 90 minutes. She's really struggled. We've seen some other players, you know, um, they came into the tournament. Both. Well, well, I, got, I got to come in there and ask you who's impressed you. Like who is really. Yeah, team? sorry. I'm, I'm just rambling. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think for me, the, the, there's been kind of the biggest impress, uh, person who's impressed me is, is their midfielder, Tony Payne. She's kind of one of the American Nigerians who's brought in by Randy Waldrum and kind of joined the team a few years ago. And look, I watched her at the AFCON and I thought, like, why is why is she playing? Like, you know, she's she's not good. She's not creative. Her touch is poor. Da, 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 da. Like, she just had a really poor AFCON. But this World Cup, she's been sensational, playing a, kind of like a number 10 uh, in that pocket behind either Onamanu or, or Oshwala. And she's just so creative. Everything good that Nigeria play, uh, creates is through her. And I think she's going to be so important against England because this Nigeria team, because of how little they've had to practice, you know, you can tell when watching, they don't have attacking patterns. They're not an exciting team to watch. You know, Waldron has spent the 10 or so days he's had to prepare for this World Cup, making them defensive, making them solid, making them strong. And so, so much of that pressure creative uh, in terms of the creativity department will all be on Tony Payne. Um, but I think she's been really, for me, the huge standout performer. So we have Asisada Shuala. She's still struggling with injury. She has an incredible story, right? This was... A young lady who had to start playing with the boys, not uncommon in many women's football stories, but came from a family that did not want her to play football. It was her grandmother who actually, in the formative years, that supported her through all of this. And she emotionally tells that story. And I only mention that because it really shows her drive and her will and how she could probably go out there and do a job on one leg. But she's injured. You're coming up against the Fulham team. Alistair, would you pick her? to start against the Lionesses. Man, everything you've said there, as, everything about Asis Oshwala is just pure inspiration. I, I honestly, like, I'm starstruck just thinking about her, like everything she's done. And, you know, it's been really hard for her these last few years because she's missed so much because of injuries. She missed the majority of the AFCON. She got injured, like, what, 20 minutes into their first game, missed the rest of the tournament. She missed the Champions League final earlier this summer with Barcelona. They still won, but, you know, it's heartbreaking for her. So for me, she, she started two games. She started against Canada and she started against Australia. And in both of those games, she had her moments. She could have scored, but she clearly looked like she was struggling. Whereas against Australia, she came off the bench in like the 64th minute, I think. And she completely changed the game. And so for me, unless, you know, she's shown over these last four or five days that she's hit peak fitness, I would rather her start on the bench. You know, you've got Ify uh, Onamanu, who, you know, isn't nearly the quality of Oshwala, but she works incredibly hard she's an absolute workhorse and you know i i would love to see her do what she did against australia work the defense for 60 minutes press work defensively bring on oshwala with 30 minutes to go when it's still nil nil 
because you know I, the idea of her coming on against um like a Millie Bright when she's tired and and, and struggling at you know having only having already played 60 minutes I think that idea is terrifying and I, I would love to see it well Alistair we love hearing how the Nigerians have done so well but I got to be honest I'm a South African right so our loyalties are there I declare an interest I also hate roller coasters for those you might or might not know that but I have to ask you I mean how are we still breathing after the trip and journey Banyana Banyana have taken us on. It was not just the late show. It was the late, late show. Shoo, Zane, it was another thing that game. I'm telling you, 9 a.m. was a good time, local time, to be watching the game. So uh, a lot of us, I think, people in offices, people at home, people who are still doing the work from home thing. Of course, the schools are back in. But I know that some of the schools were allowed to keep their pupils updated with the score as well. We're watching. And in fact, I was doing a, a, my yoga class at the time. I had, a, I had the game on very low volume and I was doing my things. And when the second goal came, I was, in fact, in a headstand and saw the goal out of the corner of my eye and nearly broke my neck Wonderful. out of the headstand to scream goal. And one of my neighbors messaged me and said, was that you screaming goal? And then of course, Italy equalized, which really I, I thought like, oh no, here we are again. You know, we saw it happen with the Argentina game. And I just thought, oh, I suppose we'll come home two points. Like, it'll be all right. But I mean, damn, it's really going to hurt because we came so close. And all, I, I mean, I know that people were anxious. And I'm just telling you my experience. I was like going crazy. I was standing up, pacing, squatting, sitting, screaming, swearing, everything. And when that final goal came and then we started counting down the minutes. And I think we had seven or six minutes to go which seemed to take even longer. Then there were two extra minutes added on. We got to 14 minutes in the end. And everybody, I think the whole of South Africa was just saying, blow the whistle and probably a few other words that I'm not going to say on the pod. And then it happened. It was, it's probably, you know, we've had an amazing year of women's sport in this country. Our cricketers reached the final of the T20 World Cup. They beat England in a semi-final for the first time, actually, which was just, that was phenomenal. It was the best day in our cricketing history, I think men and women. And then we had the best day in our footballing history, men and women, because our football team got into the round of 16. And that same afternoon, and I'm going to keep taking us back here, South Africa played defending champions New Zealand at the Netball World Cup. They drew 48 all, which was actually a really phenomenal result. Um, and it was a great result because New Zealand are the defending champions, very strong team. But everybody in the media center when I got there was just saying, banana, banana, can't believe it. This is the best day ever. People were so excited about it, including, in fact, the Ugandan netball team who hadn't watched the game, but were interested in the results. And when I told them Banyana Banyana won, they lost their minds. The whole Ugandan netball team started cheering and uh, ululating, and they kept saying, we're behind you all the way, we're in this together. And it, it was just such an amazing thing to be part of. This is, you know, South African women, and I, I say this quite a lot, we, we live in a country where we are disrespected. We have the highest rates of gender-based violence or among the highest rates of gender-based violence in the world. And our achievements are, are made very little of. But here we have our women outperforming our men in, in two major sporting codes and, and being celebrated like 
absolute heroes in Women's Month next week. We've got Women's Day in this country. It's it's just beyond words when when we talk about what this means. This is for the women of South Africa. Of course, the men are going to celebrate, and that's wonderful. But to see them saying, you know, women saying, "This is us. We're strong. We're powerful. We're resilient. We can win stuff." That's been phenomenal. No, and that's so important for you to reflect on our show to tell us about that. And if you've listened to them, that might have sparked something with you. Um, please. Hit us up on our social media accounts, OTW underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on YouTube at the same handle. Just search for the for the for the on the whistle podcast. Facebook, the same thing. And let us know if you think the same thing that Fredo's does. That this is so important. It's transcended the football. This achievement. Um, I have to bring it back to what went on um, on the field for Doz. and in the build up to that great victory over Italy, the three two roller coaster. Banyana had lost uh, Colisi Biana through yellow cards. Um, they then lost Talisman uh, Rafilwe Jane to injury against Argentina. How do they cope without the loss of those two um, stars? I think they've had a lot of uh, impetus in the front, which is something that we, we can't really say. I keep bringing it back to the men. You know, the South African men's team don't often push forward. They'll get a lead and sit on it. And in fact, most of the time, they won't even get a lead. But what we saw with Banyana Banyana was a constant pushing forward. And I, I don't think we can discount the role of, of Hilda Magaya. They call her, or she calls herself, I don't know how this nickname came about, the breadwinner, because uh, her job is to to bring home the bread. And there were so many kind of comments love going it. around. Absolutely about her. love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, hey? Um, a lot of comments about her actually, uh, you know, bringing home the whole loaf. Um, and, and I think that's been really, she, she's been amazing up front. Uh, Temi Katlana is also incredibly quick. And there were lots of uh, comments mm. on the, the commentary from maybe not always people who would have seen a lot of our players. So they're almost a little surprised when they see kind of how skillful they are. Every time she got the ball against Italy, she was away. There was also a, a uh, an unselfishness, you know, we saw a lot of times when, when somebody could take a shot, which would have been a difficult shot, they passed instead to somebody who had a better opportunity. And I liked seeing that because I think we saw that there was a sense of trust in each other. And then I guess the major talking point, and, and we have to mention the save that came at the end from Caitlin Swart, which would have made it three all. And I mean, phew, I don't know what that would have done to us on, on the day. She hasn't been great through the tournament. I think there's been quite a lot of criticism about the way she's handled the ball in the air. But uh, she was all right, and, and she pulled off that one great save in the Italy game. She's been okay on her feet, and I suppose the question is, and Desiree Ellis has, has talked about this quite openly, which goalkeeper do they go for? But uh, they've decided that, that she is the one they're going to go with. And, yeah, I, I suppose she's done what we wanted her to do in that she's conceded fewer than they've scored. So, so job done. And, and I think the depth in South African football is starting to look pretty good. Remember, it's a game that, that isn't professional at domestic level yet. And so the fact that you can see players who are either based in the US, a couple based in Europe, and then many of them based here performing so well, uh, that's great to see. And, and just, just on that, you know, it was interesting seeing some of the quotes from some of the Italy players after the game. I think it was Caruso, their center forward, because Italy's obviously, it's, it's not a, in terms of women's football, isn't a giant, but they have a, you know, really, really good young team. And a lot of their players play at Roma and, and I think Juventus, who, are, you know, both were, I think, went deep in the Champions League. Certainly Roma did. I think they got to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Champions League. And all their players were they saying, and I don't, I don't know whether to be kind of laugh or be offended, but they, they were saying we couldn't believe how good 
South Africa were. And we couldn't believe how good technically they were. They, they, they were like, these players are unbelievably skillful. And they were saying, mm-hmm. like, and, they, and, they, and, and that's where, that's where Desiree Ellis needs her flowers, right? Because she's been building this too. And, and as well as they were specifically, you know, yes, we know that. <laughs> We know that, you know, the, the Tembi Hatlanas and, you know, the Rafil Regianes and, you know, these guys are, are big players and, you know, like Jermaine Silva Senway, they're, they're, but they're, they're, the Italians were talking about, you no know, specifically, you know, your Mbanes, you know, your Hoenis, you, you know, your Dlaminis, these guys who play for Sundowns or play in South Africa, they were the ones that were saying, we can't believe that this, they're playing, yeah, some of them at Sundowns might be professional, but the league they play in isn't, and they're still this good. And they were saying we can't imagine how good they would be if they actually took things seriously domestically, if they, you know, professionalized the league. So I think that was a really interesting thing from from you know the Italians to say that they just like they were astounded at how talented and technically gifted the the South Africans mm-hmm. were, and it's kind of so frustrating because it's like yes, we know, like that's that's never been the issue. The issue is not the skill, it's not the talent, it's the kind of federation, it's the backing behind sure. the infrastructure. Sure. Look, and we're going to get to Morocco in a minute. But before we go for those, I have to ask you, you know, in sport, there are grudge matches. So South Africa play England. That's a grudge match. We hardly ever play the Netherlands at anything, really. Maybe hockey. I don't know. But I mean, given the gravitas of our history with the Dutch, given the gravitas of our history with the with the um, with, with, with the English, I don't know. Am I overthinking that that could be some motivation in the next round as we play the Netherlands? Um, tell me, you know, we've been brilliant. We've been infuriating. We've taken you on a roller coaster. How does this? How does the story end or continue in the next round? What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, there's definitely motivation to beat them. You know, you're talking about how often we play the Netherlands. I don't know if you remember Zane, but in the T20 Cricket World Cup, the men's version last November, it was in fact the damn Dutch that kicked South Africa out of the tournament. South Africa lost a T20 game of cricket to Netherlands. So there's plenty, plenty reason to, to want to beat them. I think maybe a, a caution, and this tends to happen to South African teams, uh, and, and particularly when we, when we want to celebrate their achievement, is that you think we've got so far and then that means that sort of we've done our job and now it's fine if, if things go wrong from here on. We, we get that a lot from other sporting codes. So I'm hoping that that is not what, what comes into the minds of Banyana Banyana, that even though they know it's going to be difficult, they lost to the Dutch as recently as April last year, and it was a thrashing. It was 5-1. So, you know, the, the history is not good. But we've seen things happen. We've seen Germany get knocked out. We've seen uh, Italy get knocked out, as we mentioned. You know, big teams are, are not playing in this last 16. So I think once you get to knockout rounds, and of course, there's still quite a few matches to go. It's not not as simple as semifinals and final. But really, Surprising things do happen. And can you imagine if they were able to get into the quarterfinals or even like Morocco's men did last year, get all the way to the semis? It will just be, it will send such a strong message about exactly what we were talking about in terms of professionalization. Because one of the first voices after their qualification was Janine van Veek, who went on social media and said, can we please professionalize our league? And she's been saying that for a really long time. And she's, you can see why she's arguing for that. And now it just seems as though there's not really an excuse, you know, that the money that is going to be earned from progressing thus far, obviously the players earn a lot and the federation earns a lot, the visibility, more than the money, the visibility and the fact that sponsors are so interested in them, surely, surely means that a women's professional league has to be the next step, especially if South Africa are going to bid for the 2027 Women's World Cup, which the bid is well on track. They're feeling very positive. 
Uh, they've got they've got a lot to go on. Brazil have been knocked out. They're one of the bidding countries as well, and we know that they've had problems in hosting before. So, I think this is about making statements. It's about saying that that we're here, and we want to be taken seriously. And so, even if they don't win, now I'm sounding like one of those excuse makers. Uh, I think we want to see them put on a really good show. We want to see them leave it all out there, and and hopefully, hopefully, we're going to have a quarterfinal to talk about next week. Absolutely. And momentum is such an important thing, right? And that's why winning keeps the discussion around professionalizing leagues. It keeps the discussion around World Cups. And for me, on the African continent, when we talk about momentum, the Moroccans have had it for the last year to 18 months, whether it's in CAF competitions, whether it's at WAFCON, whether it's at the Men's World Cup we saw in Qatar, and whether it's this amazing Moroccan team who... I don't want to say rose like a phoenix from the ashes or I don't know, like, you know, Black Adam from Kandak. I watched that movie on the flight over here. Um, but a 6-0 crushing defeat to Germany. They managed to come back, qualify for the knockout rounds. Alistair, how do they do it? It's incredible, right? It is. And, and I, I think, you know, rising from the ashes is, is really apt. I mean, bear in mind, in, in 2016, Morocco went over a year, I think 16 months without playing a single match, the women's national side, because there weren't any qualifiers to play and the federation didn't bother organizing any friendlies. So this is a team that six years ago literally didn't play for over a year and now they're at the World Cup. So to say, you know, that they've risen from the ashes is so accurate and, you know, they, they deserve everything that they've gotten in terms of, you know, they're the example for your South Africa's, for your Jamaica's, you know, many senses for your England who aren't paying their players either. You know, they've invested, they've put money behind the team, they put money behind the players, and they've seen so much reward. But I mean, I'll be honest, coming into this World Cup, you know, I was kind of like Morocco. I, they were a bit of a wild card because I was like, you know, their group, you know, Colombia are a good team, but not brilliant. You know, Germany are brilliant. And, and then maybe they could get a win against South Korea, maybe. And then they get hammered by Germany. And I was like, well, like, it's so hard to come come back from that. And I think so much credit has to go to, to their head coach, Reynald Pedros. I mean, I, again, I think this is a fact that we underestimate. He is one of the best coaches in the world in women's football. There is no doubt about it. He won back-to-back UEFA Champions Leagues with Lyon, the best club team in the world. And he's shown it again how, how good a coach he is because he made the changes, you know, and they're hard changes to make. You know, he took off Yasmin Imrabat and... Uh, and um, Rosella Ayan, who were two of the kind of diaspora players who had brought in before the WAFCON, both had really good AFCON tournaments. Both were some of the stars of that. Both kind of struggled in that first game against Germany. And he had the courage to take them off, bring in Ibtasim Jaidi, who, again, is a really interesting story. You know, she played um, for Asfar Rabat, the biggest team in Morocco, scored, he banged in plenty of goals. And then she's now moved to, to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, even she played, I think she only played half the season and she was the second top goal scorer in the league. I think she scored 17 goals, um, which, you know, really, really interesting story. And they also brought in Nohaila Benzina at center back, obviously really now famous, plastered across the world and known around the world because she's the only player to have played with a hijab at the World Cup. But I think that's where the response has been. It's Pedros making these really tough decisions to make these big changes. And Draidi scored the goal against uh, South Korea. She won the penalty against Colombia. But I think, yeah, a huge amount of credit has to go to Pedros and as well as the leaders on this team. You know, Ghislaine Shebek is, you know, an icon in Morocco and, and across the world now. And, you know, players like her and Khadija and Ermamichi also have kind of shown their leadership both in the AFCON and at the World Cup. But 
I mean, you ask me how, I'll be honest, I don't know how. Like, how can you lose 6-0 against one of the best teams in, in the world and then two games later, you've knocked them out by beating the team that beat them and beating uh, you know another very good team in South Korea. I, I don't know how they did it. But again, watching on the dual screen, Germany playing South Korea, and they ended almost at the exact same time. In fact, the Germany game was meant to end before the Morocco game, but then there was an injury, so that pushed back the game. Both games were like 90 plus 12 minutes kind of watching the players win and then all surrounded around a phone kind of watching the other game. And then they see that the final whistle goes. It was incredible and full credit to, to Morocco. It's been a, a sensational journey over the last few years and in this World Cup. Well, you mentioned Benzina earlier, and I know Fredoza has spoken in our previous podcasts on Morocco, the importance of a Muslim nation doing well. Um, how meaningful was it for you, Fredoz, to see her take to the field in two games with that hijab? Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. I, I... I think maybe less so for me, who, as we can see, is a non-hijabi, but uh, but more so for for women who who do want to wear and uh, and and have made it their choice to wear traditional dress. And and I think there was an interesting uh, group of of ladies in England called the Three Hijabis, who are a group of football supporters um, who want to promote inclusion in the game, who want to promote a welcoming atmosphere for everybody and who are also trying to challenge Islamophobia, especially in British football. And of course, that's a slightly different conversation. But I think this conversation can be expanded to global fan bases because we know that the men's game can sometimes be quite aggressive. It can feel like a place where not everybody is supposed to just go and have a good time and watch the game. And it can be quite antagonistic, especially if you look different and especially if you're part of a minority. So for a statement like this to be made, I think is really going to help women who want to be visible in stadiums, who want to go in and support their teams. And, you know, it doesn't have to be either or. You don't have to be a hijabi, but you can't celebrate. Or you don't have to be a hijabi, but you can't have a good time. You can be both those things at the same time. And you can enjoy the game. You can have a little party and you can have your hair covered up. It's just two parts of, of one person. And we're all made up of so many different parts anyway, right? So I think they're doing a lot for the fan base and they're doing a lot for the in-stadium experience of women who want to watch the game. But at the same time, I think it's also inspiring young Muslim girls in Morocco, in the Arab world, to go and play sport. It's not something that we are, and I say we quite liberally because I grew up in a Muslim home, but I'm not necessarily very orthodox or practicing. But women of this type of background are not encouraged to play sport. We're encouraged to do some embroidery, learn how to bake and cook. We're encouraged to read and be intellectuals. You know, I don't want to make it sound twee. We are encouraged to become doctors, lawyers, businesswomen. We're not encouraged to be physical. And we're actually sometimes grown up to, to feel a little bit embarrassed and ashamed of our bodies. And we're not taught to learn to live in our bodies as the things that they are. So, you know, soccer is a physical game. Um, a lot of the sports we see, it's about being in a lot of control of your movements, of your breathing, uh, of the way you present yourself physically. And I think that what, what this is going to do for young Muslim girls around the world, we're going to look back in 20 years, Ans Javor is the other one who's doing it, the, the tennis player that we've spoken about before. We're going to look back at her, we're going to look back at the Moroccan football team, and we're going to say that this is where Muslim women and, and hopefully even women in the Middle East, we know what's happening in Iran with security police and with demanding that women dress a certain way, where women take control and, and, and are able to say these are our bodies and we will hopefully be able to use them as we please. So that's my hope. I feel like I've said a lot of very big things today on the podcast. Um, that's why we're here. The world. 
through and sport. Football, football can and sport can. And before we get to prediction time, um, something that I've been meditating upon, and maybe you guys have, was the start of the World Cup when the Moroccan captain was asked about if there were any um, lesbian players in their team and what life was like. The BBC then forced to issue an apology for their journalist asking that question, which um, I'll start first and say I think was completely unfair, completely out of place. I don't like to say that as a journalist, but I don't know what the outcome for asking that question to that person in that environment would be. We know that Morocco is a Muslim country. We know that they have religious and cultural practices, um, which um, have been there for time and memoriam, just like a lot of the Muslim and Arab world has. This is the world we live in, right? Just like the Western world will have their own standards, practices and norms. But I wanted to get your guys' take on that and how, um, how you saw that, because I just thought it was a really unfair, unfortunate situation for somebody who shouldn't be put to answer on that. And Do you know what I think on that, Zayn? You mentioned cultural norms, but beyond any of that, the legality of it, because homosexuality is criminalized in Morocco. And if this lady was to answer yes and start naming names, she is putting her team members in danger of breaking the law. That's incredibly responsible. Exactly, exactly. And this is a situation we've got in Afghanistan as well, where, as, and I'm not obviously not condoning the actions of the Taliban and in fact saying that, that I believe them to, to be uh, anti-feminist and there's a gender apartheid going on there. But what we're seeing is that Afghanistan is being pushed to feel the women's, in, in this case, cricket and football team, and they'd in fact contracted a football team who never played. And they sort of contracted a, a cricket team, but never really named who they were. And there's a lot of pressure with people saying, of course, Afghanistan men's football is not such a thing, but their, their cricket team will play at the Cricket World Cup. And the pressure's come on saying that the men's team should be banned, similar to the way apartheid South Africa was banned, because there's government interference in the way that sport is run. And I, while I agree with that on a lot of levels, if we force Afghanistan to pick a women's cricket team, those women's lives are in danger. They could be killed for, for playing sport. And the International Cricket Council has said, we can't force this country to do that because we can't put the women's lives in danger. And I, I, you know, I'm making it sound very serious, but our reporter there who asked the question about a, about a criminal act, whether or not we agree that it should be a criminal act, and I don't, is, is she's asking someone to put people in danger. And I think that is incredibly irresponsible. I think for me, is it just it screamed of someone who just had no idea of the world outside of Europe. I think like and yeah. no sense that the world could be different and and for me there was I'd so angry about it because it felt like there was so much deep seated and again you know I'm sure the guy had no ill intention about it um, but I just felt there was so much deep seated kind of racism and, and as well as misogyny and, and kind of sexism there because he would never ask that to you know Hakim Ziyech. Yeah or Ashraf Hakimi, yeah. you know, like, and, 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 so, and that kind of stuff, but it just in, it infuriated me. And you know, I've spoken, you know, this, uh, this is also a big discussion around Saudi Arabia and the way, you know, in, like, in, uh, you know, particularly me in the UK, the British media has treated Saudi Arabia, you know, like there's such a, it, it makes me so angry because there's such like a colonial sense of we do things right. And so we're just gonna assume that you're doing things wrong because it's different. And until you do things like us, you're not doing it right. And, and, and that's why that question screamed to me, like, again, yeah, yes, like, 
I'm, I, you know, my personal belief, I don't, I don't think homosexuality should be illegal, but the idea that you could just come into a different culture and take over that space and occupy it and say, this is, this is the truth. This is how it works. Um, it's just outrageous. And I'm so grateful that I don't know who the media officer, the FIFA media officer was, but they stepped in and said something. And I'm, you know, I'm not often very complimentary about FIFA and the way, you know, the way they manage things, but they, you know, full credit to them because, you know, even just stopping Ghislaine Shebek from being in that situation to have to answer is, is abhorrent. And it, yeah, I think it was just a, a huge mistake, but also one that is really indicative of where the media world is and the way in which sport world, you know, where the power is and where people, particularly in the West, see themselves as kind of, yeah, so much underlying kind of col colonial attitudes to me there. Just this in, yeah, sense of just, we're better than you you know, this is what we think you should think it. And if you don't, you're wrong. And it was yeah, oh, infuriating to see really, really disappointing. And this is why it's the perfect question for us to opine on around the Bri. So again, if you're listening out there, come find us OTW underscore podcast on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Maybe we're on TikTok. Alistair will let you know, come find us, come talk to us, come tell us what you think. Um, I'm going to bring it back to prediction time and maybe we'll give it to you, Ali. How do you think Morocco can go in the next round? They're obviously playing France, some great themes. You have Nigeria playing England. Think of the colonial links. You have South Africa playing the Netherlands. Think of the colonial links. And France, Morocco certainly doesn't need any more um, uh, spice for this to be a fiery encounter. Absolutely. Well, even, you know, even when we were talking about the hijab, you know, how significant is it that Morocco, the one team with a player with a hijab is playing against France, the team, like, you know, of the country that is famously anti-hijab and, you know, trying to make it illegal. So I, yeah, so many layers to it. So, you know, and this is why we love sport. This is why we love football. Um, look, I think for me, for me, the one thing I've always said about this Morocco team is for me, technically and tactically, they are on a par with every single one of these teams. You look at players like Shebek, like Tagnout, like um, Oazrawi, who's been, you know, one of the sensations of this tournament, their right winger who, you know, has come out of seemingly nowhere. She wasn't at the AFCON. She only got her first caps uh, earlier this year. And she's been sensational. But for me, the thing that Morocco really struggles with, and we saw it against Germany, is, and, you know, is, is the pace of the game. And actually, I, earlier this year, I, I was at an Asfarabat game, um, you know, in which Shabak scored two goals. I think Tagnal scored one, they, you know, one comfortably as, as they tend to do. But I actually met two of the coaches, the backroom coaches. I think it was the fitness coach and defensive coach of the Moroccan national team. They were there scouting the players, seeing them. And I got, and I was chatting with them and I kind of, I was asking them like, how is it, you know, do you feel about these players playing it as far as it good? And they were saying, yeah, it's brilliant in terms of most of our players play for the same team. There's a real cohesion, they get good training, but they were saying because they play the league hasn't caught up to where a lot of European and North American leagues are. They really struggle with the fitness and the pace of the game. And we saw that against Germany. Germany is one of the most physically dominant teams in the world. And that's where Morocco really struggled. You know, thankfully they'll never have to see pop again, Alexandra pop, because she is an absolute mountain <laughs> front. And, you know, I don't envy anyone trying to defend her, but for me, that's, that's where they might struggle because France is also a really strong physical team. And these are players who are used to playing at a really high paced uh, kind of standard of football. And so for me, that's why Morocco could do so well against the South Korea, do so well against the Colombia, but they might struggle against these bigger teams. Now, obviously they I'm sure they've learned their lessons, particularly Renal Pedro, who's managed coached a lot of these players in the French setup. And he said that in his post-match press conference that, you know, he has, he knows, he knows how they play. He knows what they do, but, 
for me, I think it's going to be a huge, huge tough ask because just the physicality is where I think that they're really going to struggle with against against French team. And you know, you know, you think about set pieces, people like Wendy Renard going up for these these corners. You know, it is it is really hard to imagine Morocco being able to write that out. You know, that said, they do have the play, they do have quality and they've shown that, but I think it's going to be really, really tough for Morocco, if I'm honest. I think they're the ones that I think are going to struggle the most. Well, listen, we'll keep optimistic. If the men's team could roll over Belgium, Spain and Portugal, perhaps as a way they can take it to penalties and do the same. Now, guys, this is where the pod would have ended, but I do want to just give a few words on Zambia. Um, I'm going to start with obviously a very serious point right now, which is the fact that there are reports that FIFA are investigating uh, the head coach of Zambia, uh, Bruce Mapwe, for um, misconduct relating to um, sexually uh, assaulting a player at the Women's World Cup. Um, He has been accused of rubbing his hands over the chest of one of his players during a training session in New Zealand. And this complaint has been received by FIFA and the um, the local authorities in New Zealand. Uh, the Football Association of Zambia reportedly saying that they have not received such a complaint. And on the video footage that they have, because everything is shot, this evidence has not emerged to light. They say FIFA also have access to the footage. Um, Bruce is somebody who in the build-up to the World Cup with some exclusive reporting in The Guardian has been accused Um, of sexual misconduct before. Um, It's something that he has denied and it's something that the Football Association of Zambia have said there is no evidence of. So let us be fair and reflect both sides on this. But um, given the gravitas of the story, um, I just wanted to get your thoughts for those and Alistair um, on what is obviously some very serious allegations. Yeah, Zain, and as you say, it's not the first time we've heard of them. So what I would like to see from this point is uh, a transparent investigation where we know exactly what has gone on, maybe even if there is access to the footage for journalists to go and look for it, for someone from the outside to have a look. But then also the previous investigation, the one just before the World Cup, where there were some quite disturbing things said about the conduct of the coach and the way, and there's obviously a power dynamic between coach and player, and in this instance, between a male coach and female players. So I would like for us to to really know what is going on there before we reach any conclusions. And just to add to your point, and and although this is obviously a very serious matter and we hope to be able to bring people more information on it, uh, I would like to say that Zambia, who came back from two five-nil drubbings, left the World Cup with a win and they've had a lot of problems. Their captain, Barbara Banda, who we know missed the WAFCON because of issues around her gender and issues of eligibility, which her own football federation had with her, who was able to score one of the goals in their final victory, their 3-0 win. So, you know, our African teams across the board, Zambia included, who will be home sometime this week, have done a great job. And and despite, and this is what I think is really the, the nugget of African football that I'd like for people to take is nothing here is perfect. We've got so many problems across so many levels and the, the, the triumph of our spirits is is really massive and, and 
as Alistair was saying earlier, it, it's not about technical nows. It's not about the the kind of style or flair or creativity. It's the funding and the sponsorship that we don't have here and the professionalism. And, and you can see that across so many sporting codes. Australia are a great example because their women win everything across basically all sporting codes. And it's because they've invested so much into their sport over such a long period of time. And it's so intensely professional. And so from my perspective, a country like Zambia, who's got a huge amount of talent and potential and an equally huge amount of problems, if we could clear out the problems, you know, you're going to see these countries flourish. And, and th that's what I think we would like to see. Alistair has also kept tabs on the story, so he may have a, a more uh, investigative eye on it. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, there, there's, yeah, I think in terms of the players, first off, yeah, I think Ferdos is right. Like, you know, obviously we're talking about the three other teams, but Zambia, We've seen the immense talent that they have. Barbara Banda, Rachel Kundanangi, you know, players like that who have stood up and, and been brilliant in, in particularly that last game, that 3-0 win. Um, and I think it I think for, for on the pitch, it's really frustrating because it, it, you see this really good team and you feel the sense that they just weren't prepared for this World Cup. Um, they just weren't equipped for it. And that and that is a real shame. That is a real in terms of they haven't been given the support. And again, a lot of these players, you know, they're playing in, you know. And, and this is a this is an interesting struggle that I've seen across, you know, and again, it always seems to happen at these World Cups is people are super surprised that these African players aren't, that they're, they're brilliant. They're like, oh my goodness, these players are sensational. Like, why didn't we know about it? And it's because, you know, so much of their their kind of access to success and to, to progressing is so blocked off. So, you know, and, and, and so, you know, when coming into a World Cup, you look at this Zambia team, you say, oh, this player plays, at the, you know, they have three or four players playing in Kazakhstan and in China, like, of course, they're not going to be good, blah, blah, blah. And then they're terrific and they're exceptional. And I think there's a huge thing to be said about that, that, I'm, you know, we saw a little bit after the WAFCON with players like, uh, I think Grace Chanda got a move abroad to Sweden. And we saw um, Monday Gift from Nigeria get moved to Tenerife in Spain. But, you know, we've seen that these players are, are, are at the talent of the, you know, these players who play in the WSL, the NWSL, the, the biggest and best leagues in the world. But it's just those pathways are being blocked off. And we've spoken about this again you know, you know, a long time ago, I think with Francis, who's a lot more insight into the kind of player transfers aspect, particularly on the men's side, that so many of these barriers are, are up. I think with the, with the kind of situation with the coach, with, with Bruce, Bruce Mape and Zambia's, you know, yeah, like you said, Zambia have not covered themselves with glory, the, the FA there. You know, I remember, yeah, at the WAFCON with, with Barbara Banda, you know, the whole thing was, oh, we thought, initially we thought it was CAF had banned her from playing and there was this big shock that how could they blah 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 and then it turned out that actually the, the fa hadn't submitted her because they didn't think that she would pass the gender eligibility rules and there was that you know there was just this huge sense of how what, how could you let this happen and and so i think there's a lot of distrust in the federation to be dealing with these situations properly and i think one thing that's highlighted is is one of the other coaches mentioned in the guardians uh kind of piece that they did who was along with Bruce Mapwe was named as, as one of the players who committed some of these kind of uh, sexual assaults is he's now the head of a woman's club in Zambia. And so there's a sense of, you know, this guy is under investigation for, you know, abusing his power in a sexual way over women who he has power over. And yet one of them is still a head coach for this national team and is very much in charge. And the other one, no longer works with the under 17s let's remind ourselves these are under 17s not even senior players and he's now one of the I, don't, I, I think he's not the head coach but i think he's in an administrative role 
over one of the clubs in Zambia, women's club. And for me, there's a real sense of mistrust there because it's, you know, at the very least, if these guys are being investigated, take them out of the situation because, you know, even if we're at the World Cup, yes, you might risk Zambia's performance in a World Cup and destabilizing things. But at the end of the day, people's safety is far, far more important than any of this. And, and so for me, that's the real sense of frustration with this is it doesn't feel like I have much trust that actually what's going to happen is going to be resolved. And of course, FIFA doesn't actually have a lot of power in terms of, you know, they're not they're not a government where they can request, you know, information. They can only get what the Zambian FA gives them. And so if the Zambian FA doesn't give them anything that would incriminate their kind of employees, then it's hard to see how FIFA can do anything. So I think there's a real sense of, you know, frustration and kind of classic, just no one really taking responsibility. And at the end of the day, it's the players and the people who are at the heart of this are the ones who are suffering. Well, we will be watching this very closely. Um, certainly here in our podcast to celebrate the positivity, the heroes, the stories at the World Cup and with Morocco, South Africa and Nigeria, we have that. But also important for us to reflect on Zambia and the issues there, as well as the achievement at this World Cup. Uh, for those, Alistair, it's been such fun getting around the virtual bride and chewing the fat with you. Cape Town, Middle Britain, outskirts of Chicago. We're bringing it all together and it's been such fun. Um, we wish you well. We look forward to the knockout rounds. Send us your predictions. You know the Twitter handles. Or you know what? If you're watching on YouTube or you're listening on your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, leave a rating, leave a review, leave a comment. We love interacting with you and it helps people find the show. All right. C'est la vie. Have a good one.